Chapter eighteen, part thirteen of volume two of a popular history of France from the earliest times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume two of a popular history of France from the earliest times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter eighteen. The Kingship in France, part thirteen. A French knight, covered with wounds, whose name has remained unknown, hastily scratched a few words upon a scrap of parchment dyed with blood, and that was the first account Philip the Handsome received of the Battle of Courtrai, which was fought and lost on the 11th of July, 1302. The news of this great defeat of the French spread rapidly throughout Europe, and filled with joy all those who were hostile to or jealous of Philip the Handsome. The Flemings celebrated their victory with splendor, and rewarded with bounteous gifts their burgher heroes, Peter de Koning amongst others, and those of their neighbors who had brought them aid. Philip, greatly affected and a little alarmed, sent for his prisoner, the aged Guy de Dampierre, and loaded him with reproaches, as if he had to thank him for the calamity, and forthwith levying a fresh army, as numerous, say the chroniclers, as the grains of sand on the borders of the sea from Popondus to the ocean, he took up a position at Arras, and even advanced quite close to Douay. But he was of those in whom obstinacy does not extinguish prudence, and who, persevering all the while in their purposes, have wit to understand the difficulties and clangors of them. Instead of immediately resuming the war, he entered into negotiations with the Flemings, and their envoys met him in a ruined church beneath the walls of Douay. John of Chalon, one of Philip's envoys, demanded in his name that the king should be recognized as lord of all Flanders, and authorized to punish the insurrection of Bruges, with a promise, however, to spare the lives of all who had taken part in it. How, said a Fleming, Baldwin de Paprode, our lives would be left us, but only after our goods had been pillaged and our limbs subjected to every torture. Sir Castellan, answered John of Chalon, why speak you so? A choice must needs be made, for the king is determined to lose his crown rather than not be avenged. Another Fleming, John de Rennes, who, leaning on the broken altar, had hitherto kept silence, cried, Since so it is, let answer be made to the king that we come hither to fight him, and not to deliver up to him our fellow citizens. And the Flemish envoys withdrew. Still Philip did not give up negotiating, for the purpose of gaining time and of letting the edge wear off the Fleming's confidence. He returned to Paris, fetched Guy de Dampierre from the Tower of the Louvre, and charged him to go and negotiate peace under a promise of returning to his prison if he were unsuccessful. Guy, respected as he was throughout Flanders on account of his age and his long misfortunes, failed in his attempt, and faithful to his word, went back and submitted himself to the power of Philip. "'I am so old,' said he to his friends, "'that I am ready to die whensoever it shall please God.' and he did die, on the 7th of March, 1304, in the prison of Compeña, to which he had been transferred. Philip, all the while pushing forward his preparations for war, continued to make protestation of pacific intentions. The Flemish communes desired the peace necessary for the prosperity of their commerce, but patriotic anxieties wrestled with material interests. A burgher of Ghent was quietly fishing on the banks of the Scheldt, when an old man accosted him, saying sharply, Knowest thou not, then, that the king is assembling all his armies? It is time the Gentees shook off their sloth. The Lion of Flanders must no longer slumber. In the spring of 1304, the cry of war resounded everywhere. 
Philip had laid an impost extraordinary upon all real property in his kingdom. Regulars and reserves had been summoned to Arras to attack the Flemings by land and sea. He had taken into his pay a Genoese fleet commanded by Renier de Grimaldi, a celebrated Italian admiral, and it arrived in the North Sea and blockaded Zurichsee, a maritime town of Zealand. On the 10th of August, 1304, the Flemish fleet, which was defending the place, was beaten and dispersed. Philip hoped for a moment that this reverse would discourage the Flemings, but it was not so at all. A great battle took place on the 17th of August, between the two land armies at Mont and Puel, or Mont and Puvel, according to the true local spelling, near Lille. The action was for some time indecisive, and even after it was over both sides hesitated about claiming the victory. But when the Flemings saw their camp swept off and rifled, and when they no longer found in it, say the chroniclers, their fine stuffs of Bruges and Ypres, their wines of Rochelle, their beers of Cambrai, and their cheeses of Bethune, they declared that they would return to their hearths, and their leaders, unable to restrain them, were obliged to shut themselves up in Lille, whither Philip, who had himself retired at first to Arras, came to besiege them. When the first days of downheartedness were over, and at the sight of the danger which threatened Lille and the remains of the Flemish army assembled within its walls, all Flanders rushed to arms. The labors of the workshops and the fields were everywhere suspended, say contemporary historians. The women kept guard in the towns. You might traverse the country without meeting a single man, for they were all in the camp at Courtrai, to the number of twelve hundred thousand, according to popular exaggeration, swearing one to another that they would rather die fighting than live in slavery. Philip was astounded. I thought the Flemings, said he, were destroyed, but they seemed to reign from heaven, and he resumed his protestations and pacific overtures. Circumstances were favorable to him. Old Guy de Dampierre was dead. Robert of Bethune, his eldest son and successor, was still the prisoner of Philip the Handsome, who set him at liberty after having imposed conditions upon him. Robert, timid in spirit and weak of heart, accepted them, in spite of the grumblings of the Flemish populations, always eager to recommence war after a short respite from its trials. The burghers of Bruges had made themselves a new seal, wherein the old symbol of the bridge of their city on the Rye was replaced by the line of Flanders, wearing the crown and armed with the cross, with this inscription, The lion hath roared and burst his fetters. Rugit Leo, Vincula Fregit. During ten years, from 1305 to 1314, there was between France and Flanders a continual alternation of reciprocal concessions and retractions, of treaties concluded and of renewed insurrections, without decisive and ascertained results. It was neither peace nor war, and after the death of Philip the Handsome, his successors were destined, for a long time to come, to find again and again amongst the Flemish communes deadly enmities and grievous perils. At the same time that he was prosecuting this interminable war against the Flemings, Philip was engaged, in this case also beyond the boundaries of his kingdom, in a struggle which was still more serious, owing to the nature of the questions which gave rise to it, and to the quality of his adversary. In 1294 a new pope, Cardinal Benedetto Gattani, had been elected under the name of Boniface VIII. He had been for a long time connected with the French party in Italy, and he owed his elevation to the influence, especially, of Charles II, King of Naples and Sicily, grandson of St. Louis, and cousin Germain of Philip the Hanson. Shortly before his election, Benedetto Gattani said to that prince, Thy pope, Celestine V, was willing and able to serve thee. 
only he knew not how. As for me, if thou make me pope, I shall be willing and able, and know how to be useful to thee. The long quarrel between the popes and the emperors of Germany, who as kings of the Romans aspired to invade or dominate Italy, had made the kings of France natural allies of the papacy, and there had been a saying ever since, arising from a popular instinct, which had already found its way into poetry, "'Tis a goodly match, as match can be, to marry the church and the fleur-de-lis. Should either mate a straying go, then each, too late, will own twas so." Boniface the Eighth did not seem fated to withdraw from this policy. He was old, sixty-six. His party engagements were of long standing. His personal fortune was made. Three years before his election he possessed twelve ecclesiastical benefices, of which seven were in France. By his accession to the Holy See his ambition was satisfied, and as legate in France in 1290 he had made the acquaintance there of the young king, Philip the Handsome, and had conceived a liking for him. King Philip must have considered that he had ground for seeing in him a faithful and useful ally. Neither of the two sovereigns took into account the changes that had come, during two centuries past, over the character of their power, and of the influence which these changes must exercise upon their posture and their relations one toward the other. Louis the Fat, in the first instance, and then in a special manner Philip Augustus and St. Louis, each with very different sentiments and by very different processes, had disentangled the kingship in France from the feudal system, and had acquired for it a sovereignty of its own, beyond and above the rights of the suzerain over his vassals. The popes, for their part, Gregory the Seventh and Innocent the Third, amongst others, had raised the papacy to a region of intellectual and moral supremacy, whence it looked down upon all the terrestrial powers. Gregory the Seventh, the most disinterested of all ambitious men in high places, had dedicated his stormy life to establishing the dominion of the church over the world, kings as well as people, and also to reforming internally the church herself, her morals and her discipline. "'I have loved justice and hated iniquity, and that is why I am dying in exile,' he said on his deathbed, but his works survived him, and a hundred years after him, in spite of the troubles which had disturbed the church under eighteen mediocre and transitory popes, Innocent the Third, whilst maintaining, only with more moderation and prudence, the same principles as Gregory the Seventh had maintained, exercised peacefully, for a space of eighteen years, the powers of the right divine, whilst Philip Augustus was extending and confirming the kingly power in France. This parallel progress of the kingship and the papacy had its critics and its supporters. Learned lawyers, on the authority of the maxims and precedents of the Roman Empire, proclaimed the king's sovereignty in the state, and profound theologians, on the authority of the divine origin of Christianity, laid down as a principle the right divine of the papacy in the church, and in the dealings of the church with the state. Thus at the end of the thirteenth century there were found face to face two systems, one laic and the other ecclesiastical, of absolute power. But the teachers of the doctrine of the right divine do not expunge from human affairs the passions, errors, and vices of the individuals who put their systems in practice, and absolute power, which is the greatest of all demoralizers, entails before long upon communities, whether civil or religious, the disorders, abuses, faults, and evils, which it is the special province of governments to prevent or keep under. The French kingship and the papacy, the representatives of which had but lately been great and glorious princes, such as Philip Augustus and St. Louis, Gregory the Seventh and Innocent the Third, 
were, at the end of the thirteenth century, vested in the persons of men of far less moral worth and less political wisdom, Philip the Handsome and Boniface the Eighth. We have already had glimpses of Philip the Handsome's greedy, ruggedly obstinate, haughty and tyrannical character, and Boniface the Eighth had the same defects, with more hastiness and less ability. The two great poets of Italy in that century, Dante and Petrarch, who were both very much opposed to Philip the Handsome, paint Boniface the Eighth in similar colors. He was, says Petrarch, Epistolo Ramiliaris, Book Two, Letter Three, an inexorable sovereign, whom it was very hard to break by force, and impossible to bend by humility and caresses. And Dante, Inferno, Canto Nineteen, Verses 45 to 57, makes Pope Nicholas the Third say, Already art thou here and proudly upstanding, O Boniface? Hast thou so soon been sated with that wealth for which thou didst not fear to deceive that fair dame, the church, whom afterwards thou didst so disastrously govern? Two men so deeply imbued with evil and selfish passions could not possibly meet without clashing, and it was not long before facts combined to produce between them an outburst of hatred and strife which revealed the latent vices and fatal results of the two systems of absolute power of which they were the representatives. Philip the Handsome had been nine years king when Boniface the Eighth became pope. On his accession to the throne he had testified an intention of curtailing the privileges and power of the church. He had removed the clergy from judicial functions, in the domains of the lords as well as in the domain of the king, and he had everywhere been putting into the hands of laymen the administration of civil justice. He had considerably increased the percentage to be paid on real property, acquired by the church, called possessions in Mortmain, by way of compensation for the mutation dues which their fixity caused the state to lose. At the time of the Crusades the property of the clergy had been subjected to a special tax of a tenth of the revenues, and this tax had been several times renewed for reasons other than the Crusades. The Church recognized her duty of contributing towards the defense of the kingdom, and the chapter-general of the Order of Citeaux wrote to Philip the Handsome himself, On all grounds of natural equity and rules of law we ought to bear our share of such a burden out of the goods which God hath given us. In every instance the question had been as to the necessity for and the quota of the ecclesiastical contribution, which was at one time granted by the bishops and local clergy, at another expressly authorized by the papacy. There is nothing to show that Boniface the Eighth, at the time of his elevation to the Holy See, was opposed to these augmentations and demands on the part of the French crown. He was at that time too much occupied by his struggle against his own enemies at Rome, the family of the Colonnas, and he felt the necessity of remaining on good terms with France. But in 1296, Philip the Handsome, at war with the King of England and the Flemings, imposed upon the clergy two fresh tenths. The bishops alone were called upon to vote them, and the order of Citeaux refused to pay them, and addressed to the Pope a protest, with a comparison between Philip and Pharaoh. Boniface not only entertained the protest, but addressed to the king a bull, called Clericus Lecus, from its first two words, in which, led on by his zeal to set forth the generality and absoluteness of his power, he laid down as a principle that churches and ecclesiastics could not be taxed, save with the permission of the sovereign pontiff, and that all emperors, kings, dukes, counts, barons, or governors whatsoever, who should violate this principle, and all prelates or other ecclesiastics who should, through weakness, lend themselves to such violation, 
would by this mere fact incur excommunication, and would be incapable of release therefrom, save in articulo mortis, unless by a special decision of the Holy See. This was going far beyond the traditions of the French Church, and in the very act of protecting it, to strike a blow at its independence in its dealings with the French State. Philip was mighty wroth, but he did not burst out. He confined himself to letting the Pope perceive his displeasure by means of diverse administrative measures, amongst others by forbidding the exportation from the kingdom of gold, silver, and valuable articles, which found their way chiefly to Rome. Boniface, on his side, was not slow to perceive that he had gone too far, and that his own interest did not permit him to give so much offence to the King of France. A year after the bull Clericus Lacos, he modified it by a new bull, which not only authorized the collection of the two-tenths voted by the French bishops, but recognized the right of the King of France to tax the French clergy, with their consent, and without authorization from the Holy See, whenever there was a pressing necessity for it. Philip, on his side, testified to the Pope his satisfaction at this concession, by himself making one at the expense of the religious liberty of his subjects. In 1292 he had ordered the Seneschal of Carcassonne to place limits to the power of the inquisitors in Languedoc, by taking from them the right of having their sentences against heretics executed without appeal, and in 1298 he issued an ordinance to the effect that to further the proceedings of the Inquisition against heretics, for the glory of God and for the augmentation of the faith, he laid his injunctions upon all dukes, counts, barons, seneschals, bailiffs, and provosts of his kingdom, to obey the diocese and bishops, and the inquisitors deputed by the Holy See, in handing over to them, whenever they should be requested, all heretics and their creed-fellows, favourers and harbourers, and to see the immediate execution of sentences passed by the judges of the church, notwithstanding any appeal and any complaint on the part of heretics and their favourers. Thus the two absolute sovereigns changed their policy and made temporary sacrifice of their mutual pretensions, according as it suited them to fight or to agree. But there arose a question in respect of which this continual alteration of pretensions and compromises, of quarrels and accommodations, was no longer possible, in order to keep up their position in the eyes of one another, they were obliged to come to a deadly clash, and in this struggle, perilous for both, Boniface the Eighth was the aggressor, and with Philip the Handsome remained the victory. End of chapter 18, part 13